Hey, what's up, everybody? Woo! So, how about this? How about my hair, right? Am I right? Hello. Hello. Hi, Dan Benjamin. Hi, John. How's it going? Oh, I was speaking into the wrong end of the microphone. There you go. (laughs) I picked it up and uh, I was like, hello, and I'm talking into the back of it. Well... Durr. It sounded a little echo echoey, but yeah, not. Uh, I'm not 100 percent on my game right now. What's wrong? Oh no, it's not. It's nothing's wrong. I just, I'm just rolling thunder. You know, I, I woke up and I was like, <laughs> I need a cup of coffee. Right, sure. And you know, I've got my Keurig here. Nice. But I bought uh, a long time ago when I bought the Keurig. I bought a whole box of those little creamers little cup of cream that are that supposedly are shelf stable but something happens. things are to supposed them. to last years yeah supposed to last past the apocalypse but uh <laughs> but they all kind of like i don't know what happened but they weren't stable and they all kind of mildly they didn't curdle they're still okay to use but they just became clumpy hmm. and i don't like them you know what i mean no, like I your totally coffee know. Your coffee experience has got to be pleasant. It's not just a question of, are they edible? Right. So this morning I was like, oh, I'm going to go down. I use my Keurig, but I, you know, I like a little cream in my coffee. I'm not, I'm not one of these black coffee drinking, like interstate cops who just sits, sit around drinking shite coffee with no, with no fun in it. Yeah. You know, no, put a little cream in there. It's like a milkshake. <laughs> sure. So, so I'm running out of the house and I'm like, I got to get some, I got to get some cream. How am I going to do this? And then I realize I've got, because now I'm taking all this medicine. Cause well, I'm not, wait, just, we want, I want to get into that. That's a whole yeah. separate thing, right? Well, right. So, you know, obviously I've been taking this bipolar medicine now for a year. I've right. talked about it. Yeah. And then I started taking some kind of, uh, blood pressure medicine. That's that seems to be having no effect at all. Okay. Uh, but nobody wants to put me on more blood pressure medication. And so apparently I'm just taking this stuff and it's, and every time I check my blood pressure, it's still really high, but whatever, whatever, I guess is the, has been the response so far from the doctors. And then, so in order to reduce my risk of heart attack more, I started taking a baby aspirin because my dad famously at some point in the late 2000s, my, my band, The Long Winters, were all sitting around with my dad. And, um, and my dad said, listen, if I could go back in time and there was one thing I could have done differently, it'd be that every day I would have taken a goddamn baby aspirin. And we all went, whoa, really? And he was like, just a goddamn baby aspirin every day makes a... Your life will be different. Huh. So I'm taking a baby aspirin now. Yeah. And then I was what thinking. Is it, of, what is that for? I mean, what's ah, the just thin, It thins your blood a little bit so you don't have, you know, men of my age, they get, they get heart issues. Yeah, sure. Strokes and all these crazy things. I don't want to be, I don't want to go out like that. Did you, and not that you need to, because I don't, I certainly don't trust doctors, but did you check with the doctor first before you started on ah. the doctors i'm with you i'm totally with you a baby aspirin isn't gonna hurt anything it's a it's literally for babies yeah i understand 
and then I started taking fish oil pill because I was at the pharmacy and I was walking along and looking at all this stuff and didn't understand what any of it was. But I was like, huh, those are big pills and they say fish oil on them. Uh-huh. I imagine the pill itself is just like full of fish oil. And I've read for many years that fish are good for you because they have naturally. Yeah. Fish oil is, uh, is important. Yeah. So I started, I bought some of those and then my millennium girlfriend started talking about this stuff called Elysium. Right. We talked about that earlier too. Mm -hmm. Elysium. Yeah. Which is something like NAD, which is a miracle compound, a miracle version of vitamin E that takes all your free radicals and stuffs them in a Christmas stocking. And it also increases your uh, sensitivity to pheromones. Really? And yep. And you can see halos. You can see around corners. Uh, You can play the kazoo better. It's an amazing drug. No, no, no. Seriously. Does it all. So I started taking that. Okay. Because she wants me to live forever. And then somebody online, after after I complained to you about, like, that my memory was kind of yes. patchy, somebody said, so, I'm, so the other stuff is NAD, I guess, but there's stuff called NAC, which is just one letter off, that is another one of these drugs that if you read it, if you read the description of it, it says, oh, this is for people who lose feeling in their hands, or this is for people who can't tap dance anymore. And then way, way down the list of indications, it also says, oh, and also if you're suffering like weird memory issues as a result of taking bipolar medicine, which was originally intended for seizures, right? then you take this and it also binds... It binds to the free radicals that were more free than the free radicals that got grabbed up by NAD. And it also enables you to, um, to do yogic flying. Of course. Um, it causes the ends of your fingertips to exude wax. No. Maybe. Who knows? Anyway, so I never took any pills or any drugs of any kind. And then I went to that doctor a year and a half ago and she said, listen, I didn't come to see you. So why don't you take my advice and, and take this bipolar medicine? And I was Uh like, "Ah, all right. And then it had a great effect on me. And so I was like, shit, now every time somebody says some medicine, I'm just going to start taking it. So now I have this handful of pills that I take every morning uh, that has like a confusing array of different things it does. Only two of them are prescribed and one of them, one of the prescribed ones doesn't seem to be doing anything. I throw the pills in my mouth. It's such a, the, that fish oil pill is about the size of a, uh, like a challenge coin. <laughs> so I throw them in my mouth and then it's just like every morning I feel like probably what's going to kill me is I'm going to choke on this handful of pills, but I refuse to divide it up and, and eat them separately. I have to, I have to throw them all in my mouth at once and swallow the entire like seven pills, which is just feels like it's a sort of, it's a test of my hardiness. If I can't swallow my own pills, 
I don't deserve to, I don't deserve to live. No, I agree with that. And so here I am, you know, like, uh, full of, full of these things. And I don't, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not sure how you begin to detect that your memory is improving or changing or whatever. And I haven't died yet. So I credit that to the baby aspirin. Anyway, so this morning, as I was leaving, as I was leaving the house, I was like, aha, a solution. And I grabbed an empty Lamictal bottle and I filled it a with what? cream. A what pill? An empty Lamictal Lamictal. Or Lamotrogen, whatever the stuff is that I'm taking. Okay. I have empty pill bottles all over because also they seem very useful to me, so I don't throw them away. I, I, if somebody were to come to your house... Would they assume, would it, would it be like a, is it like a hoarder house or is it not at that level? No, I'm not a hoarder. I mean, things like I keep, I mean, I realize I'm asking potentially a hoarder if they're a hoarder. So of course they're going to say no. For a long time, I kept peanut butter jars. Because, this is what I'm talking about. Well, no, but they seem very useful for keeping old screws, for keeping Sharpies. How do you ever get the peanut butter oil all the way out though oh you put them through the washing machine a couple of times it comes out Mm -hmm. and uh and after a while my mom was like listen no more peanut butter jars all right you got them you got every kind of peanut butter jar you need so i started saving jam jars because they're smaller and and better for little screws and then my mom was like listen you can't keep keeping jam jars either but i have a barn for this stuff uh, but if you came to my house right now, you would say, it's time to clean this house. That's what yeah. you would say. Okay. And sadly, you know, I have a very large collection of clothes, a lot of Pendleton and Filson items, more than I can wear. And so I've been gearing up to have a big garage sale flea market type of thing where I sell all these <clears throat> wonderful wool vintage wool garments but what that means is that i pull them all out of their storage and i lay them out and i go oh yeah this one is beautiful you know this one's gonna i gotta put that in this pile and then this one well you know i don't want to give that away yet and i put it over in this pile this pile that's like not yet pile pretty soon all all it would look like to an outsider is that you walked in and there's like 10 piles of wool jackets all over everything Mm. and you'd say this is this person's crazy but really, there's a system. They're all, they're all staged. You know, they're getting ready for their new life. I thought about going down to the Chamber of Commerce and saying, is there a pop-up, like, a, like an empty storefront that I could just have a pop-up store yeah. for one month where I just fill it up full of stuff and then I sit there behind a desk and people come in and go, whoa, this is weird. This is weird in here. It's got a lot of weird things. It's got jam jars full of little screws, but it also has like... 400 candlesticks and like it's full of great Filson jackets. What kind of store is this? And then they would see me in the back surrounded by globes. They would go, oh, I see what it is. This poor weird hoarder (laughs) trying to get rid of his, trying to get rid of all the weird stuff that he likes. Yeah. In order to join the world. You know, I have been selling a lot of stuff. I've noticed. Over on eBay. I've noticed this. And I don't, you know, to me, eBay was something I had used a decade ago to buy like scuzzy 
terminal adapters for a spark station, you know, like ancient computer equipment. And that's what it was kind of what it was for me. And I remember the process being kind of tedious and they have really streamlined the whole thing. So now you just take a couple pictures, you put the thing up, set a price for it and kind of forget about it. And then when it, when the thing sells, you get an email that says, Hey, you're whatever you're selling has sold. And you chuck it in a box and on all on eBay, it'll handle the printing. It'll handle printing out a label. Mm-hmm. Everything is done within the site. Now you, the post office postage, everything is done. So then all you have to do is like put this thing, if it's small enough in your mailbox, take it to the post office or a UPS store or whatever. And they've made it incredibly easy. And so I've just been going through stuff, just purging, 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 purging. And the crazy thing of it is, is that people seem to want to buy anything. (laughs) Like really doesn't matter what it is, what condition it's in. Uh Uh how whether it's functional or not i mean it really really doesn't matter if the price is right and and the crazy thing is there have been a few things that i put up there that wind up selling for almost what they would cost new and i think it's i feel almost guilty because i feel like i'm taking advantage of of people's sort of addiction to that but the buzz of of selling or the, the, the almost like a gambling thing, because you know, this is an auction. Yeah. So if, if somebody like let's, I have like right an example, I have a right now, a, uh, a G shock watch. G shock. Wasn't he, uh, wasn't he a rapper at one point? <laughs> yeah, that's right. In the mid nineties. Yeah. This, this is his, one of his watches. Oh no, that was shock G. <laughs> was there such a person? Yeah, There was shock. G was one of the, uh, was one of the, Digital underground aliases, an alias uh, among the digital underground crowd. I I didn't know that. Shock G. Well, uh, this watch, I don't remember. I've had it for years and years. They don't make it anymore. G-Shock. This G-Shock watch. It's the AWGM100B-1A. Sure, of course it is. And that should, you should be able to conjure exactly what that looks like in your, in your mind now. And, uh, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice looking, uh, watch. And so I put it up there. I said, I don't know who's gonna, who's gonna want to buy this thing, you know, but it doesn't cost anything. If if you put it up there and it doesn't sell, that's all right. Like it doesn't cost you anything, you know, right. <clears throat> but they don't make this anymore. And that means that somebody out there is like, oh man, if I could just get a hold of one of those G shock watches, I, that was the. I think, yes, I think that's what's going on. So there have been eight bids on this thing. Yeah. I started it at $35 and I, I said to myself, I won't get any bids on this. Because, <laughs> but 35 and it, but it's exciting. You, you can look at the history of the bids and you can see it going up and a, a bold move was made recently. It was, uh, it was at 42 bucks and someone stepped in, went all the way to 45. Yeah, here we go. They're getting serious now. And then, uh, just, just a mere nine hours later, now it's at 46 bucks. Here we go. Right up the, right up the ladder. And, uh, and so this watch is going to go, I mean, this is, this is moving, you know, uh, 40, 40, what is it? Six dollars? <laughs> 46 bucks for a watch that had been sitting in a drawer for several years. 
that I had not worn and had no intention of ever wearing again that I was just going to take to a, a donation place. And now I'm not doing that. I'm selling stuff. And I mean, and the, some of the stuff though, like I had a, a Tom Bin bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Bin bag. They're sort of your, your, the nemesis of Filson, I would think. Tom Bin? Yeah. Uh, why is that? Well, because I think they're in Seattle also. Oh, really? They're making really high quality bags. I don't know if they compete with Filson, but I, I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it's or or. How do you or spell Tom Bin? T O M B I H N. But I had one of these bags. I put it up for sale. The thing sold for like five dollars less than you could buy it new. Shamalama. And I don't know why. Wow. So uh, I'm saying you got to get you got to get on this. Yeah, but the question for me is always like I'm 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 in it. I'm doing it. I'm. I, I'm doing it as far as like thinking about it, right? Uh-huh. Like, oh yeah, I've got all these jackets. Woo! Here we go. And then I think like forty-five dollars for a G-Shock watch. Yeah, I mean, if you sold ten of them, you'd have four hundred and fifty dollars. And I guess that's into the realm of. Yeah, that's well. Think you know, of it like this: they they pay the, the they pay the shipping on it. The the uh, the Federal Express. The user, the the person buying it, will pay the shipping. Oh, I get you. I get you. All right. So it's like an additional charge. Uh, then um, yeah. I will. So I'll go on the site after the thing sells. And I'll, so do you want to print postage? Yeah. Print the postage. You tell it what size box you're putting it in. Yeah. And uh, how much it weighs. And it then prints you, the postage, it prints the postage. At home? Yeah. And if you have a printer, it does. I mean, obviously well, they can't make it just come out of the, the top of your. All right. So I got to get a printer. You don't have a printer? Well, I got one of those things that was like a, some wireless printer that was also a scanner that was also yeah, that's, that's better than what I got. Well, but I ha- I put it downstairs. I think I got it to work a couple of times and now it's just down there like in that pile of things that's like there's a DVD player there that I had to use a screwdriver to get the door to open. Hmm. There's like a cassette mach- a cassette player or like a a uh, a component, a cassette component. Yeah, no, I know what uh, you mean. But that the the um, that the motor for the for the the drive makes a kind of sound, so it only is useful if your stereo is turned up really loud. And I was like, this isn't any good. But it was a nice piece of equipment, you know. It's one of those like seventies wood. Oh yeah, uh, but it's not. <clears throat> it's I don't feel like it's worth repairing. Like so, you know, I've got a stack of that. Someone stuff will buy that. They'll buy all of that. Oh my god. Now if you don't if you don't want to go to the trouble of making your printer work, you could always just take it at the post office and send it that way. It's just an extra step. I see. Okay. All right. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. So that so anyway, one way or another you're printing the you're printing the the postage out and that's it. Drop it in the box, send it away. And Drop so it in the you, box. If you've got something there sitting downstairs like that, if you put in the description doesn't work, you were yeah. broken. To a lot of people, that's an opportunity for them to be like, that's fine. I fix these things. Like, I'm looking for that. Or I want it for parts or whatever. I mean, people are out there hoping every day. Every day they wake up and they've got their alerts on eBay where if an item matching the description of what they're looking for turns up, then they're going to go bid on that thing. Every day. Every day they wake up. Ten times a day. Every day they write the book. They (laughs) do. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's right wow. and, but i'm just saying like you could you could be turning this into cash and so you're sitting there thinking yes. you're thinking well you know it sounds like a lot of trouble it's not and once you do the first one you're like oh that was easy oh that's what i'm hoping i'm hoping that i get addicted to this because dan i have forty thousand dollars worth of uh 
really cool stuff that I would get rid of in an afternoon if I could, you know, like I am so ready Do it. to it. And I've got, Oh man, so much cool stuff. If you like Pendleton jackets, woo, do I have some fur collared Pendleton jackets for you? How do you spell that? P E N D D L E T O N. Yeah. Except it may be P A P E N D E L T O N. They, they spell it. They spell it slightly different than you might think. Okay. So here I'm looking, I'm looking at a, did a search on eBay here. Mm-hmm, Pendleton. Here's one that says NWT men's Pendleton wool jacket. NWT. $136.80 is the current high bid on that one. But NWT is new with tags. Okay. And NWT is new with tags. Okay. Here's a vintage. Mine Vi- are all from the 50s and 60s. Okay. Okay. Sorry. A vintage Pendleton wood hunting jacket yeah. coat. I have those. Green, black. Yep. I have one of those. $65. Ah, $65. That's not enough. Pendleton Cabela's Outdoorsman hooded wool. No, no, no. Cabela's. Come on. That's got a $188 bid on it. Well, sure. Cause it, cause dummies think Cabela's is, is something. I'm just saying here, you know, here's another vintage eighties Pendleton wool coat, Southwestern 169. All right. All right. All See, right. I'm just saying, I mean, most of them do look like they're going for 50 to, to $75, but yeah. here's a men's medium M Pendleton, hundred percent wool plaid button for 80 bucks. You could be making some mad, mad money here. <laughs> mad. So Pendleton is a company from uh, Portland, Oregon, and they make their own wool, uh, like beautiful wool fabrics. And then they, turn those wool fabrics into, they sell the wool fabrics to other people, but they also turn them into blankets and jackets and they're a venerable Northwest company. Uh, they're a venerable Northwest company that has recently in recent years outsourced, uh, some of the manufacturing to Mexico. So of course, just like with my Levi's and with everything else, I won't buy a thing unless it was made in America. And that means that I have to now be very particular because that means you have to find the old, the old stuff is better than the new stuff. I'm, I, I, my feelings on this are clear. Yeah. I feel like the old stuff was made in the old way and the new stuff is made in the new way. And uh, maybe I overvalued this stuff. In fact, it's almost certain that I do because I feel like if you're going to go pay $250 for something now yeah, and you can get, I mean, in uh, like an exponentially better garment in every way that's just lightly used for $150. Why would you go buy a new thing? But then I'm somebody that likes standing out in the rain in wet wool rather than standing out in the rain dressed like somebody who bike commutes to work. Right. In some kind of new fabric where the sleeves are glued on. Like, I don't want one of those. I don't want one of these jackets that's a disposable thing. I want like a, like a thing and wool. God damn it. It does as good a job as anything, but I'm not going to go. I'm not going to get into that now. You don't like the newer, the newer style fibers. I mean, all these things that are like, Oh, it wicks away the sweat and it's lightweight and all that stuff. As though we're all summiting K2 all the time. Like if you legitimately bike commute to work in the Northwest, I understand that you need, or that you would prefer like specialty garments that 
that serve a different purpose than uh, than any kind of like I'm wearing this because I think it's aesthetically pleasing. You're gonna you're gonna need specialty things that that are lightweight and breathe and stretch, and you're gonna use them and ride them to work, and then pretty soon the Gore-Tex is gonna bubble or the sleeves are going to come unglued or whatever. And you're going to get some more stuff because you're doing a very specialized thing. Yeah. And the fact that you look like Pagliacci or you, that you look like, um, like a, a pile of, sh- of highlighters doesn't bother you because you don't care. You're, you're riding your bike to work is a noble pursuit. It's also great exercise. It's one I, I see these people riding their bikes to work in the rain, in the winter. And I think their experience of life is so much different than mine. They are like every morning they're anticipating this exhilaration as they leave the house, you know, um, dressed like a Harlequin and they get on their little bike, which they think about all the time and they monkey with, and they're like, here we go. (laughs) And then they're into the, you know, and they're like down in the trenches of the Death Star, zipping in and out of cars and the rain and the mist and the and they're just like living their lives. <laughs> their hearts are beating and they're they feel like this invigoration. And then they get down to where they work and they have to already have in pl- it, like a plan where they're going to take off all this ridiculous wear, shake it off and then have either. I can't see how they have it underneath. They have to be carrying or storing their actual clothes. Oh yeah. And I, I presume that they have some capacity to take a shower at the other end. Cause I don't see how you could like commute for 45 minutes on your bike and then like just put on some normal clothes in the bathroom and sit at work all day. I would think that you would be covered in perspiration. But maybe you're in such good shape and your Gore-Tex breathes so well <laughs> that you get to work and you're dry as a bone. You know, maybe you're the Amy man of riding your bike to work and you never perspire. Does she not? I, Amy man does not perspire as far as I can tell. Okay. I've spent a lot of time with her on stage and off and she, you know, she feels always like, uh, I mean, she's dry as paper. But, but so you're living a very different life than me. I understand that you have very different costuming than me. Like I'm just sort of trudging me or the listener. I'm talking about the, the bike, the bike worker. I see. Okay. The bike rider. Um, but to wear those clothes around as though the, that kind of bike commuter clothes is a kind of thing. Like this is what I look like. I look like somebody that should be biking to work, except I'm standing around in my child's elementary school playground or I'm like, I think this stuff looks amazing. It's like, Oh boy. Whoo. Did you get sold a, a, a bundle of goods? You get that pen, uh, that Patagonia catalog in the mail and you're like, Oh yeah. What I want is a Gore-Tex jacket. That's got like a forest motif, except with, except it looks like a, it looks like a Descent ski unitard from 1987, mm. which I have to say, if you're on the internet 
and you look up Descent ski wear, you're going to find some fascinating patterns in such such uh, delightful colors as mauve or mauve mm-hmm. and mustard and I mean some great stuff Dan you should you can get these one piece ski outfits you could bike to work all day in those things and you literally would look like Pagliacci because they're because they're blousy too you know they're like you should be at you should be in Venice at the carnival but all by way of saying, this morning I filled a Lamictal bottle with cream, and I put it in the pocket of my of my vintage wool jacket, and yeah. I brought it down here. And now I'm enjoying this this uh, this coffee milkshake mm, here in my office. Oh, mm. just exactly how I imagined it. Also, my office is full of vintage wool jackets because I put I brought some of them down here to stage them here. Uh, How many a, are we talking about? Like five or no, <laughs> no. I mean, if you include old army jackets, I would say I have 25 to 30 jackets that I could sell because for a long time, for a long time, you could go into thrift stores and buy these things for $5. And at a certain point, I realized that there were all these Vietnam and Korean War era, um, like Navy coats, not just pea coats, but like deck jackets from aircraft carriers and stuff that had like stenciling on the back and cool stories, you know? Because when I was a kid, you could go into Army Navy surpluses and get that stuff for pennies. For basically, you're buying it for the fabric weight, like World War II era stuff that they were just. I don't know where it was being stored, but they were just offloading all this government surplus. And I bought all that stuff and wore it really hard. And I don't know at what point it went from buying it because I wanted to a warm jacket and buying it because I thought it was a cool thing. Mm-hmm. But at some point it did transition. And I still think it's all very cool, but I need it out of my life now because I'm not running a vintage store. Right. And I don't live in a gigantic warehouse loft where I can have the history of army jackets displayed on the walls. It's bananas. Anyway, so I like that you are selling things on eBay. I am going to do it. I'm going to get addicted to it. It's going to be like potato chips for me. And then I'm just going to, I'm going to walk around the house and I'm going to sell everything. I'm going to be like, Wurlitzer piano for sale. I think you should. This is the thing. I really think you should. I think you're going to get into it. I think you're going to like it. And also I have to say this. I think the fact that it's yours, like if you're, if you don't decide to go the, to go the anonymous route and just like get some kind of code name. Mm-hmm. But if you actually like use your real name or tweet about the thing and say like, yeah, this is my, I think the value is going to skyrocket. Hmm. I think it's going to be because then it's like a celebrity, like who wouldn't want, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like who wouldn't, if you, if you could get like Stanley Kubrick's, you Whoa. know, wristwatch or something like, yeah, I would rather have that than just a, a generic wristwatch. I'd rather if have I the could, one that Stanley Kubrick had. If I could get Stanley Kubrick's Filson jacket. That's what I'm saying. This is the same thing. There are people out there who 
for uh, whom for whom I am the Stanley Kubrick of of, of uh, jackets or something. Yeah, of jackets. Yeah, you know it. It is true that within the vintage car market, there is the celebrity car, which is worth considerably more. Like if if a if a car can be proved to have been owned by Steve McQueen. Oh yeah. Steve McQueen being a famous car yes. lover, uh, a Steve McQueen car will go for like tons and tons more. Put an extra zero on. That's what I'm saying. The same thing. But who's who? Mm-hmm. I think if you were to take a little poll, just go out and and ask a typical, not even American, just a typical person. Think yeah. about flannel. Who do you most associate that <laughs> with? Kurt Cobain, and they're gonna, and, and then I would say, wait, I mean, living person, uh-huh. it's you. Oh yeah, the average person on the street. Yeah, yeah. The problem with the Steve McQueen factor is that uh, John Voight's K car, whoever <laughs> wow. owns, whoever owns John Voight's K car, also thinks that it should have an extra zero on the end because Steve McQueen's car does. But John Voight is not Steve McQueen, and. I mean, John Voight's K car maybe is the exception, but if like Ryan Gosling was selling his Fiat 500, yeah, there would be a lot of people that would be interested in it, but none of the people that would be interested in it have the money to buy it. Mm. You know, there'd be like a lot of 22 year olds that were like, (gasps) it's Ryan Gosling's Fiat 500, but you know, what does that add? Like. $600 $600 more dollars to a, to a $2,600 car. Eh. Anyway, I'm just saying, I'm, I, I'm just saying that the idea. Yeah. Is, right. uh, is just, there could be, there could be something there to that. I'm saying take one, take your least favorite one and put it up there and just see what happens. Well, I'm not going to do that because I love them all like my children, Ugh. but, uh, but also everything that I own is extra large or large or extra, extra large. Right. And so, you know, obviously most of my fans are, are young women. Right. Of course. And so it's going to be, it's going to be a much smaller group of people that are interested in an extra large Filson jacket or Pendleton like ranch coat. But see, I, again, I think this further supports my idea here in that, these the people who are in search of extra or extra extra large they they can't shop at a typical store they're already mm-hmm. used to going to extreme measures to get something perfect so of course they're already in ebay they're already in ebay wait ebay waiting for you eba 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 they're waiting for you they're waiting okay they're like i can't i went to the store i really wanted one of these pendletons and i couldn't couldn't find one because they didn't have an xxl and look what i found not only did i find an xxl pendleton but it's John Roderick's XXL, clearly the king of flannel, the reigning king of flannel. I got one of his. Offer to sign it if they want at no mm-hmm. additional charge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you're playing out at a performing, I'm sure you, you have to sign autographs at the end of it. People come up, sign autographs, thing, get, get your signature on things. Um, I have actually sent, signed quite a few, uh, again, boobs. No, well, I have I have signed in my life three different breastuses. That's like left one, right one, or are you talking about three different people? Three different people okay. came up, and I think 
one of them was like lol right sign my uh breast and then two of them were just straight up like they did not appear to be joking did they get it did they then go immediately to the tattoo parlor and get it into a tattoo no but there have been a couple of people that have had me sign not sign but like write out some lyrics on their arm and then they had it tattooed that's very cool it's pretty cool there's there's one that's like a pretty big tattoo i mean they were standing there at a at the mercury lounge in new york and they said i want this lyric tattooed they gave me a sharpie and i was like sharpie really that's not very that's not a lot of definition right and they were like that's what i want sharpie and so i wrote it on their arm in sharpie and it's like i i've seen the tattoo it's pretty cool pretty amazing well, it is time for us to thank our sponsor. It's HelloFresh. HelloFresh, they want to change the way that people eat forever. They believe that people deserve honest, natural, delicious, healthy food, fresh ingredients. And uh, they have the uh, belief that you can make magic in the kitchen, that you, without professional training, without becoming a chef uh, or, or getting lessons, can actually cook something good. And I was very skeptical of this because in my life, I think I've cooked like one really good meal. And I didn't think that I would be able to do this. And of course, they send you these cards and things along with the food that show pictures of what the food is going to look like. And you're like, yeah, right. It's going to look like that. It's going to look like slop and it's going to taste maybe the same as that chicken thing that I make, which I wind up just dousing in ketchup because it's so burnt. Uh, so I was skeptical. You could say skeptical, but I wanted to give it a try. I wanted to actually try this because they, they, you know, if we're going to be doing the sponsorship, they want us to try it out. But guess what? Like it actually, it really turned out like it turned out like they said it was going to turn out. It looked like the picture and it tasted great. And I was sitting there like, I can't believe I actually made this. Now they make it really easy. What do they do? They send you a complete, it's like a meal kit. So you get in the box, all of the ingredients that you need in the exact quantities. There's no waste. It's not like you go to the grocery store and say, I don't know how many, how many carrots do I need for this? I'll, I'll get five. And you wind up using two and you got three sitting around they go bad and you feel guilty. You feel like a horrible person. That's uh, in the past now with these guys. They have a dietitian working there who reviews all the recipes to make sure that it's nutritionally balanced. Again, they're sending you the best, freshest ingredients in the world. And they give you these step-by-step instructions that take 30 minutes, around 30 minutes. That doesn't matter. You can be a novice like I am. You can be like a professional home cook. What, with with very little time, you just want to know you're going to get it perfect. And that's what they do. It's it's perfect. It's really honestly delicious. It comes, oh, it comes in this really cool box. It's totally insulated. So even if you live in a place like I do in Texas and it, they, they deliver it, it's still fresh. Everything's still cold. It's amazing. And they come with new recipes, new stuff all the time. It's not the same meal over and over and over again. Yeah, you can get the classic box. They also have like a vegetarian box. They're going to be coming out with a family box. And you know I'm gluten-free, so they have stuff that works for that. All this stuff is there, and so here's what you do. Uh, For $35 off your first week of deliveries, go to HelloFresh.com. Again, that's HelloFresh.com, and use the code ROADWORK, one word, ROADWORK, to save $35 off your first week of deliveries. Thanks very much to HelloFresh. Great food. 
Do you have one thing I meant to ask you is as, as a, a person who's out there doing autographs, <laughs> do you have a different autograph signature that you use versus the one that you might like endorse a check with? No, at, I used to sign my name in like junior high cursive. And as some, as <laughs> yeah. someone who's the first letter of his name is J like, let's be honest. J is the least appealing cursive letter. Unless you are a calligrapher who has found a way to make the letter J look extraordinary. It just, first of all, the cursive letter looks nothing like the actual letter J. Right. And I don't, I cannot think of a good example. Somebody's probably going to send me a beautiful J. But so I signed my name that way for a long time. And then I was like, really? Like, J O H N. Try and sign it right now in cursive. It's like swoopity swoop and then over to the O, but you have to back it up and swing around. And then H is not very appealing either. Like, and then from H to N, it's kind of, it's kind of like an Ohio roller coaster. Like, <laughs> whoa, whoa, boink, boink, wow. Like, there's nothing fun about it. And so somewhere along the line, after I started signing things for people, I realized like the J is, it just has to be like a swoop, like zoop. And then zoop, doo, 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 doo. O-H-N. And I, I started kind of trying to do it, but my signature is very unpredictable. If you took my, if you took my mom's signature, if you look at something she signed in 1951 right. and something she signed in 2011, you could overlay them. Really? And more or less, they'd be exactly the same. And every time I go to sign something, I start off with that swoop. And then I kind of like hold my breath. Like, am I going to make it through this signature where it, where it looks like anything other than that somebody forgot their own name halfway through? Just like, and then and I, I, I'm yeah, I just wish my signature was a little bit better, but I you know, I worked on it for a while and then I just was like the problem is John Roderick is not a good name to sign. It's got too many You can R-O- just do like a JR, you know. Well, so I did do a little monogram at one point like a JMR that was that was a sort of I was working in a warehouse it was like a clothing warehouse and we would get orders from companies for, this was in the very early nineties when Genera and union Bay companies like that were, were based in Seattle. And I don't know if you remember this, but there was a kind of garment that changed color based on your body heat. I don't remember that. In the early nineties, in the early nineties, it was a thing coming out of Seattle, which was you get this shirt. And if you put your hand on it and held it there for a minute, you'd take it away and it would leave a handprint on the shirt in, in a different color. But the problem with that, of course, is you put the shirt on, you run around. (laughs) What changes color? Like your armpits and your, the small of your back, right? It's, that's not a great look. Maybe it was for raving. Anyway, I worked at a company that didn't manufacture these, but like shipped them. It was a, it was a shite job, but I was, 
I was a drunk and I didn't have, I was a young drunk. Right. Uh So it's, it's not like these companies hire like hobos, but I was 21 and, and looked pretty presentable, but didn't want any kind of job that required anything other than that. I sort of take the bus there. Right. (laughs) So I would pack these boxes to send to various places. And then I would have to, do a little initials to sign off on each packing. Right. Sure. That's where you did your, your JR. Well, my little JMR, 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 JMR. And I really got so that I liked the little JMR that I'm, that I devised, but it felt like when somebody asked me to sign their, their peachy folder felt like a little bit of a ripoff, like JMR. Sort of like, nah, they're they're looking for like John Roderick. And oh, also, I don't generally sign it in a straight line. I go John and then underneath it, Roderick, right? Like, oh, sure. So it's a little stack. It's like a little. Yeah. With the the Roderick kind of set off to the side. So it seems really like zippity zap. I don't know. If I were somebody looking for an autograph and I got mine. I'm not sure what the takeaway would be if I, if I said like, huh, that's interesting. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and we used to go when I lived in Philadelphia and I go to like baseball games or football games, things like that and get, uh, and you know, get, get a signature. And it just was, it was a, such a letdown. I mean, I, I had it, but I, you couldn't tell it was just a scribble or just a letter or something. And I was always yeah. like, uh, well, I do a little bit better job than that. Like, I don't do a scribble and I don't do a letter. I don't just sort of make a check mark. <laughs> I put a, but you know, if your name was Alan Iverson or something, that'd be kind of a fun, but like J- John Roderick, it just, I don't know. I think you're underestimating your own, your own uh, name. Well, Dan, you're, you, you, you're consistently a good fan and I'll sign something for you. All right. Send it, send it to your son. Yeah. Who you claim has, has heard of me. Oh yeah. No, he knows, he knows uh, a lot of your music. Cause I, I play it in the car enough that he knows it mm-hmm. and knows some of the lyrics and has asked me what, what they mean. I don't know. Mm-hmm. No one knows. Not even John. Yeah. He knows he, he's very, he's very into music and I'm trying to broaden his, you know, like his, his, uh, realm of knowledge in the, the realm space. And it's amazing to me. He is very, very, he doesn't play any instruments or anything like that. He's very young anyway, but he is very like, he can hear three seconds of a song and tell if he's, if he's heard that artist before, he'll be able to, to identify it instantly. I think that's a good skill. I think that's a good skill. If, uh, I mean, it's a little bit of a party trick, but, it's also really good uh, for like skipping between radio stations. Oh yeah. Like, nope, 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 nope. Hey, I know this one. <laughs> yeah. I saw some pictures. Well, two, two things. We'll do the quick one. And then the, the other one, I saw a bunch of pictures of you with, uh, some, some, I guess you would call them comedic, comedic actors uh-huh. recently that, uh, kids in the hall, uh, what was that all about? What was that? What was happening there? Oh, I was at America's great uh, comedy festival in San Francisco, the Sketch Fest, 
and um, Sketchfest brings a lot of boys to the yard, if you will, <laughs> and girls to the yard. Um, and and you were there, I, Adam Savage, you were also there. Was he there? Well, Adam lives in San Francisco, and Adam is Adam is a friend. You know, he's a friend. I I don't say friend that way <clears throat> because I doubt the quality of our friendship, but only because it's a, it's always unusual when you say when you say that you are friends with somebody that other people have seen on television and think is this kind of unreachable other. But I met Adam through um through his adjacency to all the nerds, right? Like he's, he's one of the most famous American nerds. Yes. And I'm a member of the, of the nerds in waiting, right? Or the, the court, the court of nerds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that sort of orbits around the high nerds. Like, um, Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, or what weird Al or Pee Wee Herman right, or sure, yeah. Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, these are some, these are some tall nerds. I'm trying to think of some girl tall nerds. I know there are plenty. But, uh, you know, Amanda Palmer, maybe not, not, she's not really a nerd, but she is, I guess, culturally identifying with nerds now. Anyway, so as a member of this nerd court, I'm often in, in groups of nerds. The thing about Adam Savage is that he is really, really a wonderful person and an open hearted person person and an accessible person right he's an extroverted person and we're about the same age frankly and have although not a ton of cultural overlap because i never made props for star wars movies right i never had my own wildly successful television show and i don't own my own like collection of blade runner guns right we are like age and uh, how would you describe? I guess we're just energetically similar enough. I mean, he does a, he does a lot of work being friends to a lot of people, Yeah, but like we've, we've gone to a third location together. He, one time he was in Seattle and his next show was in Vancouver and he had a plane flight to catch and i said oh i'm going to vancouver tomorrow and he was like i'm canceling my flight and we're driving he and i drove to vancouver you know he's he's somebody that has a tremendous amount of energy and as a consequence like through no fault of my own he and i have become pals and he's again pals with a lot of people but but i think of him as a pal and so when you're in san francisco it isn't and when I say you, I mean me. When yeah, I'm in San Francisco, right. it isn't hard uh, to hang out with Adam because Adam wants to hang out. And he's fun to hang out with. Uh, so that's not limited to Sketchfest. 
but he's engaged in Sketchfest. He does a lot of things there. He's very engaged in the cultural life of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And he's generous. So he's like, everybody over to my place. And you go over and you hang out. And sometimes there are really nice people there. Sometimes there are boring people there. But it's generally every time there's a boring person, there's at least six nice people standing around. So you don't have to be bored. But at Sketchfest, over the years, I've also met a lot of other people that now, like Kevin McDonald from Kids in the Hall, I met a couple of years ago at, at a party at Adam's house. And then this year he said, I'm doing my podcast. Will you be on the podcast? And I oh, said, nice. yeah. I said, yes, of course. And then Dave Foley showed up, of course, because he's pals with, well, right. He's lifelong pals with Kevin McDonald. And I was impressed by Dave. I've been impressed by Dave Foley for years because I was a fan of his celebrity poker show. Hmm. I didn't really watch um, news radio until I liked the celebrity poker show and said, all right, I'll give this a chance. And then of course, who doesn't love Phil Hartman? Loved him. Right. And then Michael Showalter shows up and I knew him from his days on MTV's the slate. And I had watched version. I had watched several Michael Showalter show Walters in the early days of comedy central. You know what I'm saying? It just tumbles along. And pretty soon you're all standing around with each other. Like I was backstage at that, at that Kevin McDonald show and it was Kevin McDonald and Dave Foley, Michael Showalter and Michael Ian Black. And they're all, they're all comedians. Some of them, Michael Showalter and Michael Ian Black are longtime comedy partners and Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald are longtime comedy partners. And I'm standing there and I, I had that moment of realization, which was, do not try to be funny right now. Do not try to be funny right now. <laughs> right, right. Because they're bipping and bapping. And it's when you get four comedians standing backstage, they're all shifting their weight all the time from foot to foot. Like they're all, they're all kinetically they're like poised. Yeah. yeah. They're moving. They're like, they're like uh, cobras or something like back and forth. And they're making jokes and they're having fun with each other. And I'm the, I am the fourth guy on the show. Cause Mike Lee and black just came to stand there and stand off stage and, and shout a uh, little, little quips. I'm the fourth guy on the show, but I'm just like, do not try to be funny right now. Because if I had stepped in and been like, yeah, uh-huh. And also right. Uh, fluffer nutter or whatever. <laughs> right. It would have just been like, don't, don't just enjoy the moment. Just enjoy the, the people making comedy. And once I'm on stage, I, then I can be funny because it is, because that's the expectation. Like get out there and fucking be funny guy. Yeah. Pressure's on. Yeah. Don't step on your, you know, your own tongue right now because you've got some shit to do. Uh, but backstage, like don't, don't monkey around. I was, I was sitting with Eugene Merman at the end of Sketchfest. (laughs) Nice. And Eugene famously said one of his great lines from several years ago when somebody said, I was standing there and he may have said this even publicly later, but I was in a little group of people where somebody said, I've been doing, you know, I've been doing stand up for three years. Like, check me out. Yeah. And Eugene said, well, that's great. Only 10 more years and you can call yourself a comedian. Oh, nice. 
And it was like, ooh, ah. and he said it in his, in his way that you can't, can't resent him. Right. Right. He's hilarious. But it also, uh, it also spoke the truth that comedians have about their, their trade, which is, yeah, everybody thinks they're a comedian. Right. But you're not you're not serious until you've done your many, many years in the trenches, right? You can't just be like, I'm funny and say, I'm a standup. Right. I would think it's the same thing for a, for a musician, somebody going on and on tour or something like that. Right. Oh, not really. I rem, uh, the problem with musicians is, uh, and this is also frankly, the thing about comedians is that, yeah, that's true from within that culture. But from without that culture, nobody gives a shit about your culture. Like you can be 19 years old and have played exactly zero shows and have a hit song. And you're as big a rock star as Mick Jagger, as far as anybody cares. You know, yeah. if you, if you can sell 10 million records with the record you made on your phone and be 19 years old and not know, not be able to find France on a map. Right. And you're, you can be the biggest shit in the world. And the same is true of, of comedians, right? I mean, vine stars, whatever. but from within the culture, I remember the first time I met MC front a lot, who is a friend. I, I, uh, I love him dearly. And, uh, and we see each other all the time. And I've I interviewed him once. He's super cool. He's smart and cool. And, uh, I've been on one of his records and like, I dig the guy. And the first time we met, we we're standing around talking about the music, talking about music. Yeah. And this was before I understood the new world completely. And I said to him, well, you know what it's like, all those, all those nights in bars that smell like bleach with black painted dressing rooms and smells, you know, body odor and cigarettes. And you're out there playing for a hundred people. And, you know, like, like the struggle, right? Yeah. Here we are. We're both, I don't, I'm not, I, I don't know enough about your culture to know where you came from, but I'm, but I picture it as sort of like, um, like you've been through some nerd eight mile uh-huh. where you're out there rapping and nobody's taking you seriously. And, and he kind of looked at me and was like, well, no, I never did any of that. I put up a song on the internet and the first time I ever played live, there were 800 people there. Man, I was like, oh, right. Like took a, you know, didn't like tiptoe back, but was like, okay, we don't. We're both musicians. We are playing the same show right tonight. And yet we've come from exactly, exactly different worlds. And frankly, the same is true of Jonathan Colton. He was a computer programmer right, until right, he was. Right. 35 years old and put his stuff on the internet. And the first time I ever saw him play a show, it was, it was sold out. So none of the many years in the trenches, none, no, counts for nothing counts for nothing. (laughs) At no time did any of them stand backstage at, at one 45 in the morning arguing with somebody because they handed them an envelope that should have had $250 in it and it had 175 in it. Uh-huh. And you're like, but, but, but 250. And they're like, Oh yeah, sorry. But lame excuse, lame excuse. 
They're like, no, 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 no. Take your lame excuse and use it on somebody else. I need the extra. And they're like, oh, yeah. Tell you what, the guy that decides has gone home for the night, but maybe you could call tomorrow. Yeah, right. You could call tomorrow and get an answering machine forever. Call this number that ends in, you know, ends in zero, zero, zero. And uh, yeah, the answering machine. Send us your demo. <laughs> like none of that. No, no shared experience of any kind. You know. Uh, but anyway, I'm standing next to Eugene and somebody said, how do you guys know each other? And Eugene and I have known each other for 10 years probably. And, and again, like friends. Not friends enough to get invited to his wedding, frankly, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but like friends enough to stand around with him and talk about his wedding. Nice. Anyway, uh, something. I mean, you can't throw that. Anyway, so we're standing around. They say, how do you know each other? And Eugene looks at me and is like, yeah, how do we know each other? And it's a little bit of a little bit of like, let's try and remember, but also a little bit of like, let's see what you say. And I said, well, you know, we met at this show, that show, I think we, and Eugene's like, yeah, but we met before that because of this show, that show. I was like, that's true. But what about that one time? And then the, the other person and the other person, the third person in this equation is Robin Hitchcock and Robin Hitchcock have known through rock and roll for a long time. Although every time, you know, every time he has to be reminded of that time at the TLA in, in Philadelphia when he and Grantley Phillips played a show for us privately. It was a, it was the TLA had two shows that day. Robin Hitchcock and Grantley Phillips went on at like 5 PM and then they cleared the venue and then Harvey danger played at 8 PM. But Robin and Grant stayed through the Harvey danger show and afterwards in the dressing room. And then it moved out of the dressing room to underneath the stairs in the backstage of TLA grant and Robin and Sean Nelson and me and two other people sat under the stairs and played songs for two hours. And Robin and grant are like these geniuses that can play every song. Sean Nelson is a genius that can sing harmonies on any song. And I am the kind of genius that can sit <laughs> there and watch and enjoy because I could not really, I mean, you know, when they did Sergeant Pepper, I could sing along, but like when they were, when they were doing uh, stuff from the village green preservation society and they all knew every word and chord. And I was just like, la 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 la. <laughs> but so Robin then says to Eugene and me, or no, he says to me, so are you a comedian too? In addition to being a musician, and then Eugene turns and looks at me. He's like, now he's really looking at me like, now what are you going to say? Are you a comedian? <laughs> and I said, ah, I'm comedy adjacent. Uh-huh. That's a good answer. I'm comedy adjacent. And Eugene gave me an emphatic nod like, yes, you are comedy adjacent. And I felt very proud that not only that I had answered that question in a way that did not like uh, evoke Eugene's scorn or invoke it. It did not invoke Eugene's scorn, but also I got a like approving nod in the form of, yeah, 
that's about, that's about right. And I was like, oh yeah, comedy adjacent. All right. Just as I'm nerd adjacent. Comedy adjacent. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. Because I'm at this sketch fest. It's basically a comedy festival. Right. I'm welcomed. I did five shows. You fit in with the people that are there. I can hang. I can stand up there and banter. Nobody's like, oh, that guy was an embarrassment. But I cannot go get up and do 15 minutes of comedy. I can't get up and do five minutes of comedy. I can get up and do five minutes of like, hey, what's up, everybody? Woo! So, (laughs) how about this? How about my hair? Right? Am I right? Like, but it's not you. It's not like comedy. It's just sort of comedy adjacent. So that's what you were seeing on the Instagram is me. You know, it, 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 it feels like it feels a little gross to be constantly posting selfies with various, uh, stars of stage and film. Why is that? Why would you say Mm, that? I don't know. It's just sort of like, I think it's pretty cool, but it is, it's fun. And, and I wouldn't post, I wouldn't post one. I mean, like Jeff Goldblum was standing around in the lobby of the hotel and I didn't walk over and say, Mr. Goldblum, could I get a photograph? I was only, I was only taking selfies of groups of people where we were already standing around and having fun and knew each other. And I was like, all right, let's, let's put this up. Like social media is going to want to see this. Yeah. But I wasn't like, like, tiptoeing around trying to get selfies with people I didn't know. Sure. I don't know. All of that. Anymore, I'm very confused about what to do with social media. It feels it feels so ah, it doesn't I'm I'm not sure if it's going to make the transition into this new world that we're we're embarking upon. Our second sponsor today is Squarespace. I've been a customer of Squarespace for many, many years, long before they ever sponsored any podcast that I was doing. And that's because I realized that they were much, much better than I was at making websites. And that, you know, when you're a person who like makes websites for a living, that's a hard thing to admit. But guess what? They do an amazing job of it. They have so many templates for you to choose from. You customize the look of your website and and the way that it works just by you know, dragging and dropping and moving little sliders. You don't have to know anything about HTML, CSS to do it. And uh, it's it's just a lovely experience. It's very affordable. And guess what? You, you, you can spend time doing the things that you like to do, the things that you're good at, instead of sweating over trying to make a, a beautiful website. And it doesn't matter what kind of website you want to do. You want to do a, a gallery. You want to sell stuff. They got built-in e-commerce. Everything that you could imagine. And it's just done. And they have a beautiful template for it, ready to go. So you can go to squarespace.com. Oh, and, and like Merlin always says, even if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I don't have a website to do, what, what about your clients? What about your friends? What about the people you know that just got engaged that want a website? There's so many reasons to create a great website. And again, it's so affordable. Squarespace.com. And you're going to use the, uh, the code ROADWORK to get 10% off your first purchase. That'll show you support for this program. And it'll save you 10% off. So go to squarespace.com. Code is roadwork. Go check it out. Thanks to them for supporting this program. We appreciate it. Is that your door? No, no, no. That was me tapping. Uh, Sound like someone was 
Yeah, that's just me tap. That's the old finger tap of like, well, I'm thinking here about about posting pictures of my shoes on Instagram. Yeah. While think of think of how proud your millennium girlfriend would be mm-hmm. if you were like, you know, hey, hey, baby, guess what I did? She'd mm-hmm. say, what? I posted these pictures on Instagram. I Snapchatted some people, and I just sold a jacket on eBay. She uh-huh. would, she, her head would explode. She'd be unconscious. Uh, I'm not entirely sure about that, but, but I also do feel like. It's a little bit lightweight given given what is probably going to be several years now where, um, you know, politically I am not just in the opposition, but like in the radical opposition to yeah. a world where we're being ruled by a lowbrow kleptocracy. Do what, what exact culture should I be making? Should I be making this kind of transient culture that is, that requires that we be living in mild times because an Instagram account that's, I mean, a lot of my social media right now is full of people vociferously espousing a, like a, a, a like a leftist rebellion mm-hmm. against these your in, they, infosec people or back to the regular uh, people no regular people okay. my friends they all feel obligated right now to man the barricades uh, and all of it is I mean or most of it is largely based on what they see happening or what they assume that means about what's going to happen right uh, but they feel assaulted and they feel like the the only response is to is really to 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 start burning tires to like to 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 throw chairs and to park some cars in the street throw chairs on top of it and get ready for the tear gas and i'm not it's making obviously i mean the world doesn't feel very fun right now it doesn't feel very lighthearted and i try to maintain a social media presence that's like uh like lol yeah. right like my socks have l and r on them uh, and i managed to get them on the right feet isn't that <laughs> i saw that isn't that cute yeah. um i'm not out there not to say that i'm not personally wrestling with these things but i'm not out there contributing my voice and primarily it's because i assume for the most part that my that people that are watching me on social media either have drunk the same Kool-Aid as I have or they are not going to be swayed by my snark. And this is, this is the problem with social media, right? I mean, the, the people out there, my friends included who are using their social media accounts to mount this protest they're about half the time they're saying everyone unite but about half the time they're still maintaining that lecturing hectoring tone of like white people need to read this. It's like, who do you think is following your social media account? People that haven't read it already or people that are people that need to read it that are going to have their minds blown by it. Like it's highly unlikely that anyone 
who follows my social media account hasn't read Martin Luther King. I, I find it, I find generally that the things that I repost are, are legitimately surprising things. And that often does not take the form of here's what we need to do to preserve our rights. Cause I don't think everybody that's following me has read Tocqueville, but people aren't really sharing Tocqueville quotes. They're sharing some pretty, you know, some pretty basic stuff. Yeah. And so I'm really churning on how do I, how do I maintain this, culture that I've been uh, that I've been enjoying, but a culture that came during more or less mild times when our president was a reader and our government was being, was being uh, managed by people that I perceived to be maybe not like high minded idealists every minute, but certainly, certainly high-minded and high-minded pragmatist, let's call them, and not just um, like swing for the fences, shoot from the hip uh, people that, that are hostile to education or hostile to elites. And by elites, they mean anyone who wears glasses. Uh, and that is a that is a Pol Pot reference. So I'm not sure exactly how to handle this transition. And I'm not sure if somebody with my engagement or my the responsibility that comes with education uh, that I continue to that I can continue to be so shallow but i haven't I, I haven't figured out what what my responsibility is and 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 i've i've been up against this in a way my whole life because i am not a habitat for humanity hammer swinger you know jimmy carter's out there building homes literally swinging a hammer <laughs> And it feels like symbolically, it's a wonderful gesture. But it, if Jimmy Carter is really spending his days hammering, it feels a little bit like he's underused. To whatever degree he has the ear of statesmen around the world, mm -hmm. he should be using that time more constructively than like like building a house, right? Um, and a lot of activism presumes that that kind of like street engagement is the most authentic response. Get up, get out, get marching. And I've never been, I mean, I've, I've marched in a lot of things, Yeah, but I've never felt like really moved to swing or swing a hammer and that may be part of that may be part of the problem but but i don't think so you know there are a lot of people that are working to like surgically remedy 
the cleft palate epidemic of Central America. Right. And the work that they're doing, every single cleft palate that they restore, like changes the life of the person who was suffering from that fairly simple, like part of what makes that work so compelling is that it's a simple procedure that makes a huge difference in someone's life to walk around with a cleft palate is a massive disadvantage. But with this simple surgery, you can be restored to wholeness. And so it's, it's hugely, it's hugely appealing. It's a, it's, it's very visible. It's much harder to do invisible work to, or to do, uh, I mean, honestly, like the work of convincing people. And I do feel like I'm, I have a role there and I'm also underperforming there. And so these aren't mild times time to get up and do something. I'm, I don't want to make my Instagram feed just a, a bunch of screenshots of aphorisms telling white people what they, what, that they need to get woke. Right. Sure. Um, but what can I, you know, what, what can I do that's honest and authentic to me that reflects the seriousness of now that, that really is useful. And so I'm, I'm, I'm tussling with it. And this is all part of my overall project after election day to take a big step back from preaching I mean, I still comment on Donald Trump because he's hilarious and comment to the effect. So of what like, is this? What does this mean that you, you will you will say nothing for? No, I haven't said no, nothing exactly, but I have I do not any longer have confidence. Uh, in. In a lot of that. In a lot of that language, in a lot of the 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 premises that drive the populism of the left because I feel like populism, my, my experience of the last several months is that populism on the left and on the right presumes the same enemy, which is elites that the populist left thinks that the democratic party elites were in bed with Goldman Sachs Hmm. and the populism of the right felt like, Democratic elites were in bed with Goldman Sachs. And now we have a government of Goldman Sachs and the demo and the, the progressive left thinks that that proves their point. And the radical right is shortly about to feel like that proves their point. And, and this politics, this American politics, where everyone feels like everything that happens proves their point and no one is ever wrong. No one ever says, wait a minute. Yeah. We were wrong. The premise of democratic populism is that we get the elites out and we get the people from the streets in. We get the real authentic people from the streets. And that was the premise of the people that voted for Donald Trump, too, that the people from the streets know better than the people who have dedicated their lives to the service 
of the larger whole, the people that have studied government in school, the people that have been in government their whole lives, or the people that have studied administration. You know, my experience of traveling overseas is that one of the things that makes America amazing is the bureaucracy. All you have to do is go somewhere that does not have a functioning bureaucracy and you realize Yes, a bureaucracy is frustrating. Yes, when you go to the DMV, it is a pain in the ass. But try to go get a driver's license in Belarus or get a driver's license in Kazakhstan, and you will see how much the bureaucracy itself is the foundation of what we consider civil society. There is a due process. If someone if someone encroaches on your land, if someone builds a fence 10 feet into your property and says, fuck you, there is a process here by which you can file a complaint. And that complaint is ultimately taken seriously. And in so many countries of the world, that person that built their fence in your yard, if he knows somebody, if he's brother-in-laws with somebody, brothers-in-law with somebody, <laughs> then you are screwed. And, and so... I no longer have any faith that the people from the streets have any business in, you know, in overturning what they perceive to be the elites. Like they are wrong. First of all, about who the elites are and what the elites do. They're just fucking straight up wrong about it. And you can't convince them they're wrong because everything that happens in the world proves their point. Their point is proved every fucking day mm. that America is a racist, patriarchal kleptocracy. But the fact is America has more equality than any other country in the history of time for, and I'm talking about equality for an, such an incredibly diverse and large population. If you want to, if you want to point to Finland, go right ahead and point to Finland, but you try to, you know, Finland is not fucking diverse and it's very easy for them to accomplish what they do given the smallness of their population and the homogeneity of it. So America right now is as good as humans have ever managed to create a pluralistic society of people from all around the world with so many competing ambitions. And yet we perceive it to be this diseased and you know, and broken organism that needs this radical enema in the form of either 22 year old college students who think they understand what government is. And all we need to do is approach government completely idealistically with no sense of real politic, with no sense of the fact that there are competing worldviews that people that there are ranchers in Arizona who have a very different feeling about what the water should be used for than environmentalists in Southern California. And it's the same fucking water. And you can't just walk in there as an idealistic 22 year old with a degree in sociology and start managing those systems and those systems like spider web out fractal out across the world of, of government and I don't want 24-year-olds from Antioch yeah. having any fucking say in it, frankly. Nor do I want, like, truck drivers from, uh, from Missouri having any say in it. Like, I do not any longer feel confident that populism 
from either direction is is the solution to a goddamn thing. And I, I'm not advocating for an oligarchy or a or like a like philosopher princes necessarily, but the idea that the world is created by like recapitulated patriarchy and elitism is also maybe an idea from mild times. And when things get practical, it's, I'm starting to feel like let's step back and really evaluate where we are, which is that we had a lot going on that we were not grateful for. We had a lot more freedom than we were prepared to say and a lot more equality than we were prepared to acknowledge because it felt like idealistically we needed, we needed more. We needed perfection in those realms. And now we stand to watch that stuff walked back by people that don't believe in the first premise of it, that don't believe that there's a psychic injury from slavery 150 years ago. They don't understand that notion. Right. And they don't, they don't share it. They don't agree with it. And there are millions of them that just, you know, whether or not they are racist or not, they just don't understand the concept that there can be psychic damage and, and system systemic racism that is invisible to them, but that, but that is there. And that's a premise that everyone on the left shares and very few people on the right even take into account. And, and it is not convincing those people on the right to double down on the idea that anybody that doesn't acknowledge that premise is just a fucking racist and fuck them. Because those premises that we use to base the decisions of liberalism and the choices of liberalism and the ideals of liberalism, those are complicated premises that we accept a whole chain of before we even come to even a simple idea as simple an idea to us as affirmative action. Affirmative action is based on 25 assumptions that we've made that I believe in every one of, but if you're on the right and you just fail to accept one of those, you can even accept that there's a a, a psychic damage a, a physical damage that, transmits through generations you can accept systemic racism all you have to do is just not accept that that can be remedied by reparations and you're bounced out of liberalism and you're in you're somewhere else into a realm of the educated conservative who says yes i agree that all this is true but my remedy for it is we start with equality now and to to imagine reparations is to systematize a new kind of inequality. So I just reject the whole premise and I think start with equality now. That's the kind of libertarian argument. And you go, huh, he, uh, this, this mythical conservative agreed with me. Nine out of 10 of the, uh, of the establishing liberal premises, but he just didn't like the last one. And so all of a sudden he's over on the other 
in the other cadre. And now it feels like there's this unbridgeable chasm. And I don't believe it's real. I don't believe there is an, in, an unbridgeable chasm. And I don't think that the people in my circle are, are reflecting on how good we've had it. Well, because how, nobody, nobody's saying it like that. Nobody's no, putting it that way. Well, no. And because nobody's motivated to. Because there's a, because there's a very vocal contingent that regards any kind of like secondary reflection beyond just the initial reflection of we are under assault and can't abide it. And any other on any second level of reflection is some form of appeasement, some form of, well, you know, they've got a lot, you know, we need to work together and that's, and so, and that, that appeasement is repulsive to them because they've established that 50 million Americans are racists. And so we don't appease racism. Therefore, any attempt to say, now let's hold on a second and think about the story we've been telling and whether or not it's an accurate picture, we can see the flaws in their argument. Can we see the flaws in ours? And if that whole process of self-examination is rejected as appeasement or as capitulation, then that is the opposite of liberalism, which is inherently self-reflective. That is the advantage of liberalism is self-reflection. And we do have a more complicated argument and a much more complicated argument to make. And the complication of that needs to be presented in a way better than we're doing better than we've been doing. We've been just saying, because these have been mild times, we've been saying, get with the program, you know, fuck you. Now, uh, you know, now we have unisex bathrooms, get with the fucking program. If you don't like it, you're going to see the, you know, you're going to be on the wrong side of history. Right. And we're not acknowledging that like unisex bathrooms, which like in Seattle, I have seen unisex bathrooms and it works great. It's a better system. You know, it's just a fucking better system. But the whole notion of it is based on a very complex chain of presuppositions. And from the right, it who are just saying like, they're boys and girls and there ought to be boys and girls restrooms. Like that's a pretty simple idea to them. And and the idea that the simplest explanation is the best is one that has governed human decision-making for a long time. And on the left, we're like, no, 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 because gender is a social construct. And, and you know, we have this whole lexicon and this whole chain of thoughts that go into it. And we have not done a good job of explaining what that is. And the idea that, like, Unisex bathrooms, accept it or fuck off, hasn't been persuasive to 50 million people right? or more. I mean, there are a lot of people on the left that are like, well, I accept the need for affirmative action, but I'm not so sure I want 
transgender people in my child's high school bathroom or whatever. And so our, our compassion for people is often expressed in, in like very, um, very like dynamically unsympathetic terms. You're going to have compassion for people or you're going to get run over by the steamroller of, of uh, liberal ascendancy. So that isn't exactly me stepping back. That's <laughs> right. That's me stepping in. Yeah. But um, how to communicate the complexity of that and not open yourself up to a thousand angry emails from people who aren't appreciating the subtlety of our responsibility and the fact that liberalism is predicated on, on levels of understanding levels of understanding that not every populist progressive liberal has spent any time in the trenches thinking about, you know, they accept a lot of this on whole cloth. They haven't reflected on the, the premise behind the premise behind the premise. They're just like, they, they feel it emotionally. You know, they feel the, the justice of it emotionally and they're out there waving torches in the streets because they were raised in a culture where those at those that's a priori to them, right? They were taught in schools, that stuff that Columbus is a, is a figure of genocide. Right. And so they can't, you know, Columbus day is just like, what the fuck are we doing? And it's like, well, for 500 years, Columbus was a, was a hero and you can make a case. He still is. It's very hard to make a case that Columbus set out with the, with the notion that he was going to eliminate a people. That's not, that wasn't in his plan. Right. You know, his plan was to go find some fucking gold or to find, you know, his plan was to find India from the back. That's that was the that was what he set out with. Anyway, I'm not going to sit here and argue Columbus was somebody. But if you were raised in a school system that told you Columbus was was uh was a figure of genocide, did you go back and reevaluate all that evidence and think about what the, you know, think about who came to that conclusion and what that conclusion means and what and what that theorizes? And how it's based on a lot of theory, not a lot of evidence, but a lot of theory. Like liberalism has a lot of theory that we tend to think of as proof or, or, or proved. And all too often on the left, we present a theory. It sounds good to everybody proved. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We didn't subject that theory to any rigorous examination sounded good proved the male gaze creates uh, a rape culture proved it's like right. i don't know man yeah. That's, there's a lot to, to think about there there's a lot to think about there and you know there's less rape in america than anywhere else i assure you with the exception of finland perhaps and yet, because of the visibility of the of the conversation, it seems like a it seems like every high school football player is being inculcated in 
in this idea of like rape is part of how we make America. And it's just like, there's a lot of theories there. And it's very hard to say, let's examine that a little more carefully because you're vulnerable to the accusation that you're pro rape. And and me as a middle-aged man, you know, a a middle-aged white man to advance any of these notions is to perhaps be described as an apologist, an apologist for rape culture, because I cannot possibly understand it because I'm a middle-aged white man. And that alone is a theory. And the right and their, and their ideology is not theory based. They do not use theories. They are, they look at the evidence in front of them and they make the decision based on what seems obvious to them. And I challenge you to come up with a theory that the right uses except for trickle-down economics. That's the one fucking theory they have. It's trickle-down economics. You know, thousand points of light. Like, otherwise, they just are like, well, what the hell? There are two people standing here. I like this one. Now, maybe it's because he's white and the other guy is black, but that, but I'm going to tell you that's not it. And so what are you going to do about it? You can't get inside my head. And, you know, the left looks at that transaction and, and all of a sudden we're talking about the Howley Smoot tariff, or we're talking about, uh, the Portuguese in West Africa in 1820. So, uh, I've, I've got a lot of studying to do. I was going to say you have a lot on your mind, I think. <laughs> a lot on my mind and all I'm doing on inter- the internet is posting pictures of me in funny hats. Well, you're wearing it. It was the direction you're wearing it that makes it funny. Thank you, Dan, for getting that. 